You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. The Danvers Statement summarizes the need for the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and serves as an overview of our core beliefs. This statement was prepared by several evangelical leaders at a CBMW meeting in Danvers, Massachusetts in December of 1987. And in this podcast series, we are walking through the Danvers Statement line by line as we discuss the statement's biblical basis and ethical implications. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. And my name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW. So on last episode in this series, uh, we began to walk through the rationale and we left off after the fourth rationale. So we're going to pick up right there, Denny, and I'm going to read the introduction as to uh, what the purpose of these rationales are, and I'll go ahead and read rationale number five. It says that we have been moved in our purpose by the following contemporary developments, which we observe with deep concern. And the fourth concern is the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships, which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. Now, keep in mind, this is 1987, but Denny, what do you think they had in mind when they were writing that? Well, when it says the the growing, and by the way, this is rationale number five. You said number four. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no big deal. Uh, but anyway, number five says the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships, which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse. I think what it's talking about there is um, both heterosexual and homosexual immorality. It's just talking about the fact that um even back in the 80s, it was really clear that you were in the aftermath of the sexual revolution, where people didn't think, uh, in the wider culture at least, you could see it in people's actual lives, you could see it in pop culture depictions. It really didn't matter whether or not you were married uh, as to whether or not you'd be engaging in uh, sexual behavior. Now, back in the 80s, homosexuality was not as mainstreamed as it is now. But you could see that it was coming down the pike. You, you could see that that would be next and that the issue uh, would, in fact, be connected in that sense. But w- the, the interesting question is, is, is why, when you're thinking about manhood and womanhood, is that connected to you know, illicit forms of uh, sexual expression? The reason is because our manhood and womanhood is tied to God's purposes for us sexually. A lot of people in contemporary culture don't think that way they think of um all of these things have been sort of pulled apart the fact that you're a man or a woman and whatever sexual expression would go with that's not necessarily normatively connected to your body's organization for reproduction and so um you know th- th- that's just the the contemporary development that we that we live in and these guys were recognizing back in the 80s that if if this is the case that's going to put a strain on what the Bible says about being a man, being a woman, and what our uh, God's calling is on our lives, and particularly what the Scripture says about what His calling is on all of our lives. And so, you know, these, you know, it says the growing claims of legitimacy for sexual relationships, which have biblically and historically been considered illicit or perverse, and the increase in pornographic portrayal of human sexuality. Now, what they probably did not foresee then and was very difficult to foresee then would be how that last part would become so ubiquitous 
and such a pathology in our culture. Uh, was there pornography in the 80s? Oh, yes, there was. Um, but it was primarily in the form of, um, you know, hard print magazines or some sort of a hard copy of a video that a, that a person would have. Um, but the, the magazines were much more prevalent uh, back in those days. Um, but, but it was it wouldn't be, but what, 10 years on from when th this statement was originally written in 1987, when the internet became ubiquitous, you know, people began to be logging on online a lot by the late nineties and the internet was something that everybody was using. And as soon as, uh, almost as soon as, uh, the internet became common, so did pornography on the internet. Hmm. Then that evolved over the next itself that evolved over the next decade. So you had, um, I think it was by, oh, what, 2007, um, you begin to see, um, you, you begin to see the ubiquity of the smartphone. Right. And uh, so, I th in fact, I think it was 2007 was when the first iPhone came out, or was it, I think, I think that was the year, but you begin to see the smartphone um, begin to take off. And then by 2000, I think it was around 2013, um, oh, oh, well, this was another important development somewhere in the late two thousands, you begin to see more than half of United States households have access to a uh, high speed internet. Before that, a lot of people had dial up by around 2013. I think that was the date when, um, about more than half of, uh, everybody had, um, personal smartphones in their pocket with high speed internet connections. So the, the change that that introduced was, okay, pornography, still images of pornography became proliferated from the late 1990s on. But once you get into the late 2000s and into the early 2010s, moving pornography became ubiquitous and it was in people's pockets everywhere they went. So this was different than, um, you know, still pictures in a magazine. You were seeing moving pictures of sexual acts. And just and the average age of male exposure of these things was somewhere around 12 years old, which means there's a lot of children younger than this viewing this on their friends' phones, even when they were very young. This began to this has you know changed in my view. This is the the great moral crisis of our time uh, because it's so secret and so ubiquitous, but it has shaped the way that men and women think about each other. And, you know, it used to be thought that this was, you know, quote unquote, every man's burden, but you've, you've seen women, uh, unfortunately, an increase of women who have gotten hooked on this, this material and the way that they treat one another. And frankly, the way that they disrespect and degrade one another, um, the way men and women disrespect and degrade one another has increased with the proliferation of this material. And so. Uh, people's whole worldviews have been have been changed by this, and so th that was the thing. You know, in '87, could they have foreseen what the internet would be and the way that it would straight line pornography into almost every single home in the United States? I, I don't know that anybody could predict that, but that's what happened. Yeah, I think the pornification of our culture is certainly something that underlies so many of our our ailments and our the things that our culture struggles with. I mean, I don't think that we as parents, as churchmen and women have really come to grips with how it has affected the development of our children and the imaginations of our children. 
And then uh, even just our the degradation of our culture as this is so ubiquitous. And that certainly is going to have an effect on how we view ourselves as men, how we view ourselves as women, how our identities are shaped um, accordingly. And instead of those things being biblically based and biblically founded, even traditionally based and traditionally founded, um, pornography has really wreaked havoc on our culture. No, no question. And it, it doesn't just corrupt the consumers. Um, the consumers are just one half of it. The other half is the way that it corrupts and debases the producers. So th- these are not avatars. These are actual people you know, doing these things. And to sustain, you can just read and, and hear about stories of, you know, these porn stars who have to kind of live their life in a heroin induced fog just to move from one day to the next to do these horrible things that are happening and depicted in, in pornography. And um, so, so it's a really, so to be a consumer of it is to, is to, part- to participate in that violation of God's image. Well, uh, I don't think we've come to participating in it, come to grips with how the feedback li- loop works in pornography as well, it's as these things become more perverse, uh, and um, you know these things are practiced out in the people that are watching them, and then the in order for the clicks to continue, there needs to be new iterations of this, and that quickly moves the ball down the field into more and more we could say abusive, as you pointed out, uh, relationships, which actually relates to the sixth rationale here. In the statement, um, which the concern is around, it says in the Danvers statement, the upsurge of physical and emotional abuse in the family. Yeah, and this is um, this is such a problem, right? Um, abuse is a real issue. You have physical abuse, you have emotional abuse, and both of them are sinful. And you what the Bible prescribes is really the antidote to this. And what they were noting in 1987 is that, look, if you've got um, a man who is abusive or a woman who's abusive for that matter, but typically we think of men using their disproportionate physical strength to, to the disadvantage or to the abuse of, uh, of a wife. Um, what is, what's the antidote to that? Well, um, the antidote to that is a change of heart, but in seeing what God has called him to be in his marriage hmm. and God has called him to be not someone who exploits and uses power to harm others, but one who uses strength and a God's God's calling on his life to bless and to serve others. And um, so when you're looking at a culture where abuse seems to be uh, proliferating and in some cases, tolerated um yeah there's a need for a statement about what does real manhood require what does real womanhood require you know jonathan lehman just recently wrote an article for uh the spring 2023 issue of icon around the interplay between charges of abuse and complementarianism and there's sort of this narrative that uh is laid at the feet of complementarianism that complementarian theology leads to greater abuse, or at least we're, we're not concerned with uh, this issue of, of abuse. 
but here in the you know sixth rationale in the Danvers statement, we're talking about the uptick and the the heinous error that abuse is and uh, and causes in in families in the church. How do you respond to that charge that complementarianism leads to abuse, Denny? It's a false charge. When we say complementarianism, what we mean is that's a word that summarizes what we think the Bible teaches about what it means to be a man and what it means to a woman. So when I say complementarianism, I'm not talking about Denny's opinion or Colin's opinion or John Piper or Wayne Grudem's or anybody's opinion. We're talking, it's a word that summarizes what we think the Bible says about God's calling on the lives of men and women. That's what we mean by that. To say that complementarianism causes abuse would mean that what the Bible calls men and women to causes abuse. And you, I could no more say that than I could say that God is evil. Um, what God calls us to is always good. And what God calls us to doesn't cause evil. God is not the author of evil. His word is not the author of evil. And so if if the Bible is calling men to a benevolent headship and he's calling wives to affirm the leadership of their husbands, that does not cause sin. It does not cause abuse. It is a wellspring of righteousness and it is the path to life. Um, it is a part of our calling as disciples, right? So, um, yeah, so the, the claim that, you know, complementarianism causes abuse is just false. What causes abuse is sin. That That's what causes abuse. And the fact that um, people are crooked deep down and we are constantly suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, that's why human beings do the evil things that, that they do. And so, you know, I get, I think it's just, I get defensive about this. Um, because I believe in the word of God and you can't put that slander at the feet of the word of God. The Bible teaches what it says and it's good for us. It's not something that underwrites abuse or any kind of harm in that way. Well, in this conversation around abuse, it, it really is at the intersection of uh, what we believe about power, what we believe about authority and what the Bible calls men to is to channel their authority and power in in the service of their wives and their children um you know paul calls husbands to love their wives as christ loved the church and um to raise your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the lord not to exacerbate them abuse is a perversion and a distortion uh against those things that the bible calls us to and complementarianism um rather than being a, a channel or something that leads to abuse, it's the thing, the very thing the Bible gives us to address sinful propensities toward abuse in husbands and fathers. Absolutely. Because in complementarianism, it doesn't, it doesn't say that a, any person's authority is absolute. A husband does not have absolute authority. That's right. He doesn't have absolute authority in his marriage. He doesn't have absolute authority in, in any realm. Okay. He's, He's under authority. That's what we we believe. And he, a husband is not authorized by God to abuse his wife or to lead his wife into sin. He's not authorized by God to abuse his children or to lead them into sin. If he tries to do that, he is actually breaking the commandment. 
He's breaking what God has called him to. And wives and children, when they find themselves under a tyrannical leader who are calling them to submit to abuse or to sin, they need not to submit to that. They don't, they are not called to submit to sin and abuse. They are called, they, and, and that's just not what complementarianism teaches. So, um, but it does teach that men are to be holy as Christ is holy, and they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, even to the point of self-sacrifice, just like um, Jesus did, which means they lay their lives down. So, um, so yeah, th- th- this is a check on this idea that uh, men can do whatever they want to do with the calling that God has put on their lives. That is just not true. Amen. Complementarianism offers a better way because the Bible offers a better way. We'll pick up the next rationales on the next episode. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.